0: Um, talking about Christmas around the corner, and we're in chapter six, and we're not going to be speeding up, but in fact, we're going to be slowing down somewhat. This is, this to me, is um, an Old Testament passage that's almost on par um, with something in the New Testament, like John one, John's prologue. You know, something that's just so rich and deep. Um, And, of course, with Isaiah, there's a couple of passages uh, like that, but this is the first of them. It's a passage that should be well known to us, I hope. Um, The scene, uh, as we know, is that uh, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me for I am lost and I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king The Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar and he touched my mouth and said behold this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. It's an amazing vision, it's one that's fairly well known and much misunderstood and we won't be rushing this. Um, I was hoping to get it done in five weeks but I don't think that's gonna happen. My goal tonight is verse one, (laughs) so we're not gonna be in any rush. But this is a a very profound passage and I want us to really get to grips with it and understand it. Um, Last time that we were in Isaiah, which was a couple of weeks ago, we were looking at how these first five chapters uh, set us up for chapter six. So just very briefly by way of recollection, there is in the, the first five chapters this, whole idea of exile, that that Jerusalem is going to be punished and condemned, and they're ultimately going to go into exile. But despite the exile that is, that is coming, there will also be an exaltation. There will also be an exaltation. And so there's this, this constant tension in the first five chapters. I, I, roughly speaking, as we come into the first chapter, we have the condemnation of Of Judah and Jerusalem then in the beginning of chapter 2 we have the the prophecies of the exaltation of Jerusalem then at the rest of chapter 2 and goal of chapter 3 we have again the condemnation and reference to exile and then we come to beginning of chapter 4 and once again in chapter 4 we're back to the exaltation and then in chapter 5 with the song of the vineyard we have the most um, a thorough condemnation of Israel altogether. So we have that, you know, God saying, I'm done with you, Israel. You're, you are going to be punished and I'm going to put you into exile. You've committed idolatry. You're unfaithful. And then at the same time, there is God constantly coming back, but I'm going to keep my covenant promises. I'm going to restore you. There, there will be the king reigning on his throne in Jerusalem and the temple will be there, people will come and worship the Lord and what have you. And so we have that contrast. And then, uh, sort of in line with that as well in, in, in the first five chapters, we have the contrast between uh, God's holiness and how he has to punish sin. This, all this condemnation comes because God is a holy God. And the word holy is used constantly um, of God. He's described specifically as the Holy One of Israel at the beginning of chapter one, at the end of chapter five. This five chapters is about God who is holy having to condemn sin because of his holiness. And yet somehow God is able to say in chapter four, when we have this prophecy of the exaltation of Jerusalem, that Israel is gonna be called holy, that they will be transformed, that God's judgment of them isn't a judgment to destruction, but it's a judgment to transformation. And then uh, we see again this contrast between where Israel is now chronologically the condemnation that is to come, but also the exaltation that is to come in the future as well. So there's all these things going on, which leads us nicely into chapter six. And I will refer back quite frequently the next few weeks to the first five chapters, because you can't understand chapter six properly without the first five chapters. And I said this last time, and it's worth repeating. All the other major prophets, When you look at Ezekiel, when you look at Jeremiah, these guys have their calling at the beginning of the book. The prophet's called, and then the prophet goes and does his prophecy through the book. Isaiah uniquely has this five chapter introduction because it is gonna set us up thematically for the sixth chapter and the chronological beginning. So we have prophecies of Isaiah in the first five chapters, but the actual chronology begins now with his calling. So the first five chapters are going to set us up in various ways that we'll see as we go through. Okay, so let's kick into chapter six. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Okay, so let's try and work through this. This vision is given, it is, um, it is anchored in history. We know when this happened. This happened in our time, uh, as we would describe it, it happened in 740 BC, because we know that that is the year that King Uzziah died. And Uzziah is an interesting chap, we need to know a little bit about him. So while you're in uh, Isaiah, keep a finger or a a ribbon or something there, we'll turn to 2 Kings. So, if you're in 2nd Kings in chapter 15, we have 2nd Kings 15, in the 27th year of Jeroboam king of Israel, Azariah the son of Amaziah king of Judah began to reign. Now Azariah is another name for Uzziah. He was known by both those names. So think of Paul and Saul and what have you. This, this is, you know, in, in a sense similar. Amaziah is Uzziah. And he began to reign. Verse two, he was 16 years old when he began to reign and he reigned for 52 years in Jerusalem. So that's quite a reign, isn't it? You, you, you become king when you're just 16. That's kind of scary You think about it, becoming king of, of Judah at that time. And then until the age of 68, when he passed, he was the king of Judah. He reigned for 52 years. His mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, in the eyes of Yahweh, according to all that his father Amaziah had done. Nevertheless... The high places were not taken away. The people still sacrificed and made offerings on the high places. Now, in case you aren't familiar with this, I mentioned it a few times, but I can mention it again now. The high places weren't places of idolatry. The issue with high places was not that people were worshiping a false god. Sometimes people have that misunderstanding that the high place was, you know, some sort of high thing like a totem pole or something that was worshipping false gods. It wasn't. The idea is that the worship of Yahweh involved, as we mentioned this morning, coming to worship at the temple in Jerusalem. But a lot of people didn't live anywhere near Jerusalem. So it was quite an endeavour to travel huge distances for the major feasts and festivals to travel to Jerusalem, to leave everything behind. And so these people who were far out would rather than come to Jerusalem where the presence of God was, they would set up high places, sort of mini temple areas, which would be the places where they would make sacrifices and do the things that they would do in Jerusalem, so they didn't have to go so far. And so it really was throughout the Old Testament, a picture of compromise. It was people not worshipping a different God but worshipping the right God but worshipping him the wrong way, not being obedient to him. And so Uzziah, Amaziah, he did what was right mostly but there was this compromise in that he didn't get rid of the high places. Verse five, and the Lord touched the king so that he was a leper to the day of his death and he lived in a separate house. And Jotham, the king's son, was over the household governing the people of the land. Now the rest of the acts of Azariah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And Azariah slept with his fathers and they buried him with his fathers in the city of David and Jotham his son reigned in his place. And so Uzziah, Azariah, he gets leprosy. And were told that and that his son reigned in his place while he was afflicted with that until he died. And then he was, you know, he was buried in Jerusalem. But it intriguingly says that all that he did is written in the account of the chronicles of the kings of Judah. You've got those. That's what we call first and second chronicles. So why don't we turn to second chronicles chapter 26, because I want to look a little bit more at his leprosy. Because it's important. Isaiah doesn't say, one day I had a vision. He anchors it in history. Now he could have said, I ha- I, it happened to, on my, my whatever year of my life. He could have said it happened at this time in my life or what have you. But he specifically anchors it at a time in Uzziah's life, in Azariah's life. So it's important, I think, that we understand who this guy is so that we understand why Isaiah is linking him to this vision and to the timing of this vision. So uh, here we have him again in chapter 26. If you read from verse 1 just very briefly, Um, And all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old and make him king instead of his father Amaziah. That's why he was known as Amaziah because his father was known as that as well. So this will refer to him Uzziah. But I want you to just skim ahead to chapter, sorry to verse 16. It says in verse 16, but when he was strong, so here he is, he's doing well. And if you read the previous verses, he's been successful in war. But when he was strong, he grew proud to his destruction. Now that's very important that we understand that. Because again, Uzziah is mentioned specifically. He's specifically mentioned in chapter six for a reason. So we need to understand what characterized his life. He was a guy who was generally good, generally obeyed the law, but he compromised. And because he was a compromiser, What happens is, is that when he was successful, he was obedient. He did mostly what God wanted. He was mostly good. And so God blessed him and he was successful. And so when he was strong, he grew proud. I think sometimes we have to accept the reality that God gives us difficult times because we rely upon him because we recognise our weakness, because we cry out to him in humility, knowing that he is sovereign and he's in charge. And sometimes the tougher we are, the prouder we are, the more we have to be crushed until we learn that God is in control and he is sovereign and he's in charge. And Uzziah was very successful, but his success led to pride and his pride led to destruction. And so we're told, He was unfaithful to Yahweh, his God, and entered the temple of Yahweh to burn incense on the altar of incense. Now, if you've been coming in the mornings for Hebrews, this is going to make so much more sense to you right now. We've been looking about how the high priest would go and make the sacrifices for the people. And that under the Levitical system... The priests had to come from the tribe of Levi. The kings had to come from the tribe of Judah. So you couldn't be king and be high priest. Which is why Jesus, who is king and high priest, cannot be part of the old covenant and the Levitical system. That he is from the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek being one who was king and high priest because he was allowed to be, because he came before the law, before the old covenant, before the Levitical system. And as I said to you this morning, deliberately so, Melchizedek, he's king of Jerusalem. And he says, well, we need a high priest. I'll be high priest. I can do that job. I volunteer myself. And because he wants to do that job and he wasn't allowed to do that, there's no reason that he couldn't that we know of. But Uzziah couldn't. And Uzziah wanted to be involved and he wanted to. You see, I want you to note something here that's really important. Uzziah, he enters the temple of Yahweh. He was unfaithful to Yahweh, his God. He is a worshipper of Yahweh. There's no implication here. I mean right throughout their history. Everything that Israel is being condemned for, it revolves around idolatry. That's why Second Kings was able to say that Uzziah was predominantly good. He was predominantly good because he didn't succumb to idolatry, which is what Isaiah is condemning Israel for mostly. He didn't do that. Yahweh was his God. but he compromised. He compromised his faith. And so he goes into the temple of Yahweh, not to the temple of another god. He's not worshipping anyone else. He wants to worship Yahweh. And the worshipping of Yahweh involved the burning of incense. incense It was necessary, it was required by scripture that that should happen. But not him. It was a job for the priests. And you see, so what he did is he wanted to worship God but he was disobedient, he compromised. And what is that described as? It's described as unfaithfulness. He was unfaithful to his God. And so what happens in verse 17? Azariah the priest went in after him with 80 priests of the Lord who were men of valor, and they withstood Uzziah and said to him, it is not for you Uzziah to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense, go out of the sanctuary for you have done wrong and it will bring you no honour from Yahweh, God. Oh, I could get totally distracted here, but this is, this is powerful stuff. Firstly, as, as much as he is bad and unfaithful, the bravery of the priests. Listen, the priests, these priests come in and they go after him. And the the priest goes in with 80 others who are men of valor, brave men, warrior men. These are kind of warrior priests. And they go in and they're standing up to the king and saying, king, you can't do that. Now, many countries would struggle with what's going on here because the king is the king. I mean, the king does what he likes, right? But I think in America, you have a, a parallel here in the... Even the, the, the president is, has to submit to the rules, the constitution that you have as a nation. And in the same way, the king was in charge. He could say, let's do this, let's do that, to some degree, but he was obliged to keep the law, the law of God. And he was disobeying it. And so they stood up to the king. Now the king has the authority to have them all killed. The king has the authority, if he says you were to die, then people would come and kill these priests. There wouldn't be any question about that. And so there is an act of astonishing bravery here that they withstood the king. Why did they withstand the king? Why couldn't they let it go, go by? Because it was their domain and their area. Sometimes as Christians, there are things that are our responsibility and, and we, we cannot let it go past us. Things that are on our, put upon us and we can't compromise on them and we have to be brave and we have to stand firm. And they were brave because they knew that he wouldn't like this and they were right, verse 19, Uzziah was angry. Now he had a censer in his hand to burn incense and when he became angry with the priests, notice when it happened. This is the mercy of God, is it not? He's already committed sin, he's kept the high places, and by keeping the high places, he's tarnished the ministry of the temple. He's now gone into the temple, when it's not his role to do that, to off-burn incense. And even now, he's okay, but the priests come along and they say to him, you can't be doing this. And it is only when he resists correction God in his mercy gave him an opportunity to repent, but it was only when he resisted correction that this happens. When he became angry with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead in the presence of the priests and in the house of Yahweh by the altar of incense. Nazariah the chief priest and all the priests looked at him and behold he was leprous in his forehead and they rushed him out quickly because he himself hurried to go out because the Lord had struck him. And King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death and being a leper lived in a separate house for he was excluded from the house of Yahweh. And so Jotham his king was over the king's household governing the people of the land. I don't want to spend too much time on Uzziah but I do not want to rush this, this is too good to rush. Listen. With Uzziah, what happened is he was king. He got given a job, he got given a role that was unique. It was one king, there weren't multiple kings at once. It was him who was king. He had this huge power and responsibility, but it wasn't enough. He wanted to do what only the priests could do as well. And as a result, he then is no longer able to do his job as king either. The judgment of God upon him removed him from the role as king. He was still officially king, but he wasn't doing it practically. That was taken away from him because of the leprosy. And so it was that that when he reached out for more, he lost what he already had. And so as we come then back to Isaiah 6, Uzziah represents a few things to us. He is a person who compromised. He's a person who compromised. He compromised and as a result, his sin was exposed, his sin was exposed, and notice his ultimate state. He is leprous to his death. We have the link to his death here in chapter six and verse one. He's leprous to his death, but in his leprosy, because it made him unclean, he is kept separate. He's kept separate. So Uzziah, the compromiser, he ultimately ends up separated. He ends up separated. Now that is why, part of the reason why it's so crucial coming into chapter six, because Uzziah is one who is a picture of the compromising unfaithfulness of Israel, and he ends up being separated because of his sin. Now, this is a passage which is famous for the threefold repetition of holy, holy, holy. Now, holiness has been watered down in Christian circles. We don't fully understand it. We're going to talk more about holiness, I think, next time. But holiness is something that most Christians understand as simply meaning without sin. Without sin. But it's more than that. And we'll talk about that next time, I won't spoil next week's sermon, other than simply to say this, isn't it interesting that in the presence of the holiness of God, the seraphim had to cover their face, and yet they were without sin. So if holiness is just the lack of sin, then the seraphim were as holy as God was holy, but yet they had to shield themselves from his glory and his holiness. there's there's more to holiness than simply no sin. The, 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 The root meaning behind holiness is that holiness means to be set apart, to be separated, to be distinct. Uzziah was a separated one in a negative sense and he is used as an anchor to this passage that looks at God being the separated one in a positive sense. This whole passage is dealing with separation, the separation between man and God and how that bridge is, how that gap rather is bridged. And so Uzziah is the compromising, separated one. The other thing to note about Uzziah is we know from what we just read in 2 Kings that he reigned for 52 years, right? Now, We know that Isaiah started his prophetic ministry when Uzziah was still technically king, right? So when Uzziah dies, this vision's already happened. Isaiah's not saying, King Uzziah died and then I had this vision. He's saying, I had this vision in the same year that Uzziah died. Now, we reckon our years differently than the Jewish calendar, but just for for you to understand, it would be like if Uzziah died in December and and Isaiah uh, had his vision in January, then it's almost a whole year apart, but it's still the year of Uzziah's death. You get the point I'm making, that it's simply limiting this time period to the same year. So Uzziah was alive when this vision happened, but yet it's described as the year of his death. It's not described as the 52nd year of his reign, which it could have been. So there's a linking here to death. And I think that the the thing here that we're gonna see in all of this is the contrast between Uzziah, the king Uzziah, and the king on the throne. You see, Uzziah, In the year that he died, I saw the Lord. Now notice, when we normally see the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, that is Yahweh, the name of God, but that's not here. If you look at your English versions, you'll probably note here that when he says, I saw the Lord, that the Lord has little letters. It's capital L, but it's little O, little R, little D. It's not Yahweh. It's another Hebrew word, Adonai, which means Lord in the traditional sense we think of Lord, being in charge, being boss. It's talking about him being one who is in charge, one who reigns. And so we're having this contrast between the reign of Uzziah and the reign of Yahweh. They are separated ones. Uzziah's sin has led to his leprosy and to him to be separated from his people. And this king, he is holy, 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 and he is separated from his people. Do you see the contrast? That is is the picture that Isaiah is painting for us. And here Uzziah dies in this year, and the vision is seen of the Lord, and this is the one who is the king, who is going to be the eternal king. This is the king whose kingdom will never end. This is the one who will reign forever. You're having a king who is not able to go into the temple, a king who is compromising and who sins, and who is separated, and then we have this other king, who is separated, but he is not one who dies, he's not one who sins, and he is one who ultimately will be our great high priest. And so Uzziah's death is important. And and I hope you can see, and again this is, we've got to keep this link with the previous chapters, the the end of chapter 5 ended with, with great description of death of judgment and of death and of destruction and of desolation. And with all of this judgment going on, the king whose kingdom is about to come to an end, he's about to die, things are gonna go further downhill for Israel, the enemy's gonna come in, there's this imposing um, period of history where everything's going to look bad. And it's at this point that they're given the vision of the ultimate king whose kingdom will never end. Now there's a point of application here I do not want to miss. I do not want to miss. When we are in our darkest times, when we are in times when things are awful, horrific and totally out of our control, when terror surrounds us and tragedy is in front of us, and there's nothing we can do to escape it. That is the time, more than any other, that we need to have our anchor in the future. Future grace, as Piper calls it, future grace. Because too many so-called churches today like to approach things like sickness and death and, and tragedy as being things that are avoidable that there are churches that try and proclaim that you can get your best life now that you can that you can pray away this and have enough faith and these things will disappear but th- but that 's not life and that 's not true and that 's not reality and it 's not biblical either the, the reality is is that when we're confronted with with the sickness of a a beloved relative, that it may well be that God heals them from their sickness, but it may well be that the deterioration just continues unto death. (coughs) It may well be that our circumstances that look terrible get worse and worse and worse. And it's at times like that that our trust has to be not in the frailty and the of, of this life and of this kingdom and of this time. We are like Uzziah. We're compromising sinners who mess things up and there are consequences of that and we live in a sinful world and our bodies are fragile and frail and our lives as we know them here are going to come to an end. Most of us have gotten to the point where things aren't going to get better. (laughs) We're not going to get younger. We're not going to have less wrinkles. We're not going to become, we can become a bit healthier, but we're not going to turn the clock back beyond a certain extent. That's our future, that's our lives. But our ultimate future is glorified bodies. Our ultimate future is, is bodies no longer tainted by sin. And, and this is not simply a diversion tactic. This isn't just us saying, oh I don't want to think about what I'm going through now, so I'm going I'm to think about what's going to happen later. It, it's much more than that. What it is, is that by being, having our faith in what has been promised to come, we can endure what we're put through now. Israel, we're about to go through this turbulent time The armies that are coming in to attack the northern kingdom of Israel above them, they don't know it yet, but they're gonna find their attack coming from, from not from the Assyrians, but ultimately from the Babylonians that will take them into captivity and they'll be exiled. And the city of Jerusalem, which was so highly exalted for, rightly so, it was the place where God dwelt. It's gonna just be destroyed. The temple's gonna be destroyed. The sacrificial system won't be able to be uh, kept. While they're in exile, everything that they know is going to come to an end, not just in, 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 in regards to their, their religious practices, but in regards to their lives. People are going to die. There's going to be terrible uh, mourning and lamenting. And in the midst of that, God says, This is where we're going. Jerusalem's going to be destroyed, but Jerusalem will be exalted and lifted up. This kingdom that you're trusting in is coming to an end, but there'll be a king whose kingdom doesn't come to an end. This is not the end. When you are suffering, when you are struggling, when you're in darkness, this is not your end. I hate it when Christians say to one another, oh it'll all work out, meaning this life. It may not. It may not work out. It might get worse and worse and worse and never get better. But it will work out in the next life. It will ultimately become good. The struggles that we have now will come to an end. There will be a time when there'll be no more tears, no more suffering. There'll be a time when Christ rules and reigns, when we have no longer have any struggle with sin and everything comes to be as God had promised it would be. And that is what we've got to anchor ourselves in. Because the how we live now in the darkness affects what we're going to have in the light. The decisions we make now, even if we're, you know, I'm not talking about salvation here, if we're saved by faith and not by works, but there are works for us to do and we are going to be rewarded for them for eternity. And the, the, what we are is seen in the darkness. Trusting in God, trusting in Him in the midst of the storm. Are we going to be like the disciples, so we're going to say, Lord, why are you asleep? Or are we going to trust Him in the midst of darkness? And so that's why Uzziah is here. That's why his death is mentioned, because there is this contrast between the frailty of him, the frailty of their situation, and the unwavering assurance of God and His promises coming to fruition. And so, we see that here in all, all of this. And so in that year, it is that Isaiah sees that Lord, that, that boss, that king, he sees him sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. Now this, this phrase, high and lifted up, well, first, first of all, let's talk about how he sees him. He, he says he, he sees the Lord. That for us immediately is a clue. Remember in, in Exodus, Moses is specifically told when he asks to see the glory of God, he says, "You cannot see me, or you'll surely die." No man has seen God, John one one eighteen. But there is the one whose glory is tabernacled, who came that we might see the fullness of the glory of God. And so the fact that God is seen by Isaiah should for us as Christians, with hindsight, immediately point us to that this is the second person of the Trinity, seen right here. And so they see, uh, sorry, Isaiah sees him sitting upon the throne high and lifted up. Now, at this point when we see this phrase, high and lifted up, when we see the reference to the throne, and then when we see that the train of the robe fills the temple, there's three clues here. High and lifted up, throne and temple. Three clues. Most people traditionally have taught this to be a heavenly vision, a vision of heaven, that Isaiah was lifted up and he was able to see what was going on in heaven. You will have people who will preach along the lines of, well, you know, Isaiah, there's this terrible stuff going on on earth right now, but, God is still on the throne in heaven right now. But I don't think that's what's happening here. He's not saying, he's not contrasting what's happening on earth now with what's happening on heaven now. He's contrasting what's happening on earth now with what's going to happen on earth in the future. That's really important that we understand that. And the clues, as I said, are high and lifted up in the temple and the throne. The high and lifted up, let's look at that first. High and lifted up, is a phrase that we see elsewhere here in, uh, in Isaiah. If you flick back to chapter two, chapter two, when we've had the first passage of condemnation and we come and we see the promise of the exaltation, the exaltation of, uh, of Jerusalem, of Israel. It says, it should come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord house of the Lord, that's the temple, right? The house of the Lord, so the mountain that it's on, shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be, what? Lifted up. Lifted up above the hills. So what we have in chapter two is... And again, we've, we've been through this several times. Went through it last time when we were in Isaiah. We've been through it at the time. But chapter one, at the end of chapter one, is so crucial because it goes from God bringing judgment because of their sin to that judgment not destroying them, but purifying and redeeming them. And that leads us from chapter one into chapter two, where we see the redeemed Israel and we see this house of the Lord. And then what happens to this house of the Lord? It's all the nations shall flow to it. Many people should come. Let's say, go to the mountain of the. Lord, let's to the house of the God of Judah, and he may teach us his way, and we might walk in his paths. And so, we have this time of, of future restoration of Jerusalem. And it's note that the references to the temple and the references to it being him being lifted up, the temple being lifted up. So, when Isaiah is pointing us to the future in chapter 2, and he's saying, Look at the temple in the future, it's going to be lifted up. And in chapter four, we have another reference to the restoration of Jerusalem as well in the future. When then we come again to the house of God, the temple, and when again we see it being spoken of as being lifted up, he's pointing us to what he's already told us about in chapter two. You see in chapter two, Isaiah is told, it says in the beginning of chapter two, the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Jeru- Judah and Jerusalem. So he saw a word about it. He saw that it was going to be lifted up. Perhaps this vision is part of what he saw. Perhaps what he saw about them, he saw in this vision. Or at least this vision is part of what he saw. It certainly is connected together very definitively by the text and by the repetition of terms that this is not some heavenly reality now, but rather this is what was spoken of in chapter two and what is going to happen, what is going to happen. In verse three, notice, and here's another little clue for us. It says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Notice that the earth is full of his glory and the train fills the temple. In the same way that the the train of God's robe, the way that fills the whole temple, that God encompasses the temple, in the same way his glory fills the entirety of the earth. This is a picture of an earthly scene. It's interesting that there is a similar picture of what is perhaps a heavenly scene um, elsewhere in the scripture. I'm not sure we're gonna have time to go there tonight but the mention of the temple and the mention of high and lifted up is not mentioned there. These are things that Isaiah has uniquely put in. The, if you want to look at that passage, it's uh, in, given to uh, Micaiah in 1 Kings 22. But here, the reference to the temple and the reference to high and lifted up points us back to chapter two. This is, um, this is an earthly scene that we're seeing. And so what we have here, I think as a parallel, is we have, um, we have the condemnation of chapter 5, and now we come back to the time of, ex- of uh, exaltation of Judah, of Jerusalem in chapter 6. But what is uniquely different here from, verse, uh, from chapter 2 is Isaiah is in this vision. I saw it. I saw the Lord upon a throne high and lifted up the train of his robe flew in the temple. Now the other thing about this high and lifted up, we saw that in chapter two that the the temple was high and lifted up. But there was something else that was lifted up in chapter two. If you look at chapter two, um, verse 12. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty against all that is lifted up. Isn't that interesting? That God is the one who is lifted up, those who lift themselves up, God's judgment on the day of the Lord is going to come to them and they shall be brought low. Then the references to the cedars of Lebanon which as we saw were references to idolatry. And so those who have idols are saying, well, I'm not going to do it your way, God. I'm going to lift myself up. And who's the picture of that here in chapter six? It's Uzziah. Isaiah says, I'm going to do it my way. And God says, no, you're not. You're going to have leprosy. That's how it is that God is the one who is lifted up and others are brought down. Uzziah was brought down with leprosy. Uzziah is going to die, but God is lifted up. He's the one who is lifted up. And so this phrase about him being lifted up is crucial because it is speaking of God as opposed to man. God is the one who is rightly lifted up. His temple is lifted up. The temple is lifted up and God is lifted up and man who lifts himself up is brought low. Now that becomes very relevant because then if we want to turn towards the end of Isaiah, If we were doing a short New Testament book I wouldn't do this but seeing as this is going to be years apart you'll probably forgotten it by then so we can we can do this. But look at at Isaiah 52 and verse 13. Isaiah 52 and verse 13 is the beginning of the passage that is very familiar to us. It is the only passage I think in Isaiah that is more familiar to us than uh Isaiah 6. It is the suffering servant and it begins this way, behold my servant shall act wisely, he shall be what? High and lifted up and shall be exalted. You see right there at the beginning, don't you tell me that, a, that, the, that the Messiah being God was a New Testament concept. Here is, here is the Messiah, the servant who is going to suffer right at the start, being, being uh, described as the one who shall be high and lifted up. And by the way, can you see the parallel here with chapter, by the way, there's tons of parallels with chapter six and this passage in 52 and 53, we'll talk more about these in the coming weeks. But initially here now, see this, that we've, we've talked about in chapter six, there's this dark scenario historically where they are. And the anchor is in the good that is to come, in the exaltation that is to come. And that is mirrored in this passage with Christ. In the suffering servant passage, the servant is going to suffer. He is going to die. He's going to be crushed. He's going to be wounded. The suffering of the servant is going to happen. But right at the beginning of that passage, he shall be high and lifted up brings to mind Paul's writing in Philippians chapter 2, where he talks about the humbling of Christ, how Christ humbled himself, how Christ brought himself low, therefore God exalts him and lifts him up. Did Paul suddenly come up with that idea? No, that's Isaiah 52 and 53, that the servant suffers, but he shall be lifted up. He shall be lifted up. And then again, we see the same as said of him in Isaiah 57, Isaiah 57 and verse 14. It shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up. Who's the one who's high and lifted up? Let's read on, shall we? He inhabits eternity whose name is holy. No coincidence. Look how high and lifted up is so closely connected to being holy. In Isaiah six, he's high and lifted up, and what did the seraphim say? Holy, holy, holy. So the one who is high and lifted up, he's the one who inhabits eternity, i.e. he doesn't what? Die, like Uzziah and his name is holy and look I dwell in a high and holy place. Again it's talking about the domain of God, where he is, his temple, his throne. Also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. This is what we were speaking of this last week on Tuesday in our midweek study. When you humble yourself, God lifts you up. He's going to be there for all eternity in His holiness. For all of His holiness, He will be there. And those who are contrite will be there with Him. But those who lift themselves up, He who should be, should be lifted up will bring them low. You see how simple it is in the eyes of God. And so Isaiah 6 is, and I I hope you can see this because this is This is kind of where our studies get quite deep, but where I think it is so beneficial to you to see this kind of stuff. That Isaiah has used the concept of the temple being lifted up, of God being lifted up, so that he can show you that God is the one who is right to be lifted up. He puts down those who lift themselves up, that his being lifted up is linked to his holiness, and he's going to point to Christ as being that one on the throne by the time we come to the suffering servant passage. He is connecting this to the historical situation of King Uzziah, his his mortality, his death and the eternal holiness of this God. And Uzziah stands in the midst of it all. There's one last thing I want to say tonight before we end Um, and I I think it's important for us and, and that is this, that Isaiah can say, God is holy. God is holy. He's, gonna, he's a holy God and we should obey him. Do you, do you think, uh, you know, Isaiah when he's called, he would have been a man walking with the Lord, right? He's not the kind of guy that would have tried to take on priestly roles. He's not the sort of guy who'd have gone to high places. He's a guy who would have said, God is holy and we must keep his ways, right? But he had no idea. He had no idea and in that moment he's brought there and all these contrasts that we've spoken of tonight are brought to bear because as much as Uzziah is the one who contrasts with the king of Israel, the one who Uzziah represents in that scene is Isaiah. You see it's easy to pick on King Uzziah, he left the high places there he went and burnt incense, he took on a priestly role, he got leprosy, he's a compromiser, right? We can easily pick on him. But you see, the separation of Uzziah with his leprosy is simply a picture. It's an anti-type of this vast separation of God in his holiness. And Isaiah, who is a good person compared to Isaiah. He is before a holy God, and as we're going to see, he is stunned by the holiness of God. He is impacted. He sees his uncleanliness. He is, and we'll talk more about this in the weeks to come, but it totally uh, reveals to him who God is. And so when he sees the Lord, high and lifted up, he sees the throne, he sees everything. That's the difference. I know for us it's hard, it's very hard for us, we, we are living our lives, we go to work, we're at home with our family, we watch things in the media and TV and the news and we interact in this world and it is our reality. But this world is as fleeting as Uzziah and his reign, this world is as corrupt as him and his leprosy, as unclean. And there is another reality that is coming, and it is hard, it's so hard for us to live in light of that future reality. It's hard for us to live knowing that is to come. And so God takes Isaiah and he puts him there and he sees this this story. It's like he's there. It's like he's catapulted in time to the future to be in this. He has this vision of this future scene. And it's not like he just sees it, but he's there within it in this vision. And he's, wow, we're not going to have that. What we have is the scripture. That's what we have and Isaiah is aware of his sinfulness and when God redeems him he's like here I am send me. His life is transformed by this vision. Guys the only way our lives are going to be changed is getting hold of a vision of God and the future grace that is to come and understanding that this life is the life of a leprous king. This is a life that is, that is going to pass, it's, it's a life that is, that is tainted by sin and, and we need to be ones like Isaiah who in this life choose to be uncompromising, choose once we receive the grace of God to say here I am send me. We, we want to live this life now in the light of the life to come you're not going to have a vision like Isaiah had. You have the scriptures, that's what you have. That's why the writer of the Hebrews quotes Psalm 95 that we saw in chapters 5 and 6, where he says, if you hear his word today, do not harden your hearts like those before, referring to Kadesh Barnea. When we spend time, real slow time, we're gonna gonna suck all the meat off this bone. We're gonna look at this in so much detail. We're gonna see how it it links to the first five chapters, how it goes ahead to the end of the book as well, and how these themes are developed, how it points to Christ in so many ways. We're gonna look at all this in detail because this vision needs to become our vision. We need to go about our lives with this throne in this temple with this Lord being more real to us than this physical life here and now. Because it is more real. It's the difference between mortality and immortality, between sin and holiness. Let us root ourselves in the promises of God of what is to come as we live our lives now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your, your goodness towards us, your grace towards us, your redeeming, transforming love. And Lord, may we never take that grace for granted. We haven't just been let off things, but we've been redeemed. We've been allowed to stand in the holy place before your very presence. We be made clean. May we be stunned by your holiness, and may we live our lives in light of that. Now we pray. Amen.